Right. Uh, when we left off last week, we had just reached the year 1640. And uh, as you recall, Charles I was the monarch of England and had reigned for approximately 15 years at this point. And it had been 15 long, bad years uh, for most people, 15 years of foreign intrigue, uh, 15 years of conflict with Parliament, every single one of which that was ever called he dissolved when they uh, usually wouldn't give him money and wanted to pass laws. Uh, and then 15 years of repressive religious legislation. At this point, Charles was cash-strapped. Uh, very little money to his name. As you will remember, he had uh, attempted to impose uh, episcopacy and the prayer book in Scotland, which had been a big mistake because the Scots had, uh, had a very brief war in which two, two brief wars with Charles in which he had capitulated, first of all, offering them or having to agree to give them a free parliament and a free general assembly. And in the, in the second uh, case, having to pay them money every day in exchange for not invading England, uh, except that Charles didn't have any money. Uh, in fact, he had resorted to uh, what troops he had, what army he had, he was quartering in people's houses in order to save money. He had been extracting forced loans out of leaders of parliament, or former leaders of parliament, and threatening them with and putting them in prison if they refused to give him money. And he had been exacting taxes of every kind imaginable, and most of which illegal, even under the English constitution at that time. Uh, the political repression had led to, and the constant wars and the constant crying for money and the constant dissolving of parliament had radicalized parliament. The repression of religion, you remember, led by the Archbishop of Canterbury, William Laud, which had been brutal, uh, bloodthirsty, vicious, um, had led to an explosion of religious dissent the predictable results. The Puritans at this point were at an all-time high of religious strength and also political strength with most of the members of parliament or at least of the House of Commons, many of the members, probably about half of them at this point, being uh, Puritan sympathizers or Puritans. And within the urban areas, in London especially, there had been a proliferation of all kinds of bizarre sects uh, and some not-so-bizarre sects, like Baptists and, and uh, various separatists of, of, of other kinds. And then add to this something that we hadn't really touched on last week, which is that the economy of England was collapsing around him. Uh, the currency in 1640, inflation had gone wild. The currency had fallen in value by two-thirds. People could not buy food with the wages that they were earning. Uh, timber, which people used to heat their homes, had become extremely scarce and was now eight times more expensive than it had been a hundred years before. So if you just think of, if you, if you could imagine uh, oil prices uh, rising you know, eight, by a multiple of eight, you get something of the idea of what was going on. And so Charles, faced with a need to pay off the Scots, and having primarily this being the issue, needing to pay off the Scots so they would not further invade England, and having no money to do it with, is forced to call Parliament 
uh, again. And in 1640, he calls Parliament. He releases the, the leaders that he had put in the tower and in various prisons all around England for refusing to give him money. Let's them out, calls Parliament, says, we've got to have money to deal with the Scots. And this Parliament is going to uh, be what was called the Long Parliament, as opposed to the previous Parliament, which was the Short Parliament, because he dissolved it right away. This one's the Long Parliament because it's going to last for eight years, which is a pretty good record considering what we've seen, uh, with, the, with the, probably the average being a, a, a year or, or six months. So he convenes Parliament in 1640. The very first thing Parliament does is pass a law saying that they cannot be dissolved without their own consent. Now, why no one, now no one thought of this earlier, I don't know, but this, they pass a law, you cannot dissolve Parliament without our own consent. The second thing they do is free all of the political prisoners that Charles had and Archbishop Laud, political and religious prisoners, that they had put in the tower or in the various prisons around England over time, including William Prynne. You remember William Prynne? He was the uh, moderate Presbyterian pamphleteer who liked to write things uh, about uh, how bad theaters were and how bad Arminian doctrine was, and Archbishop Laud had had him uh, arrested and his ears cut off two different times and his nose slit and branded on both cheeks as, as a seditious libeler and put in the tower to be confined for life. Prynne was a lawyer uh, before he was put in the tower. Just remember that. They let Prynne out. And in 1641, uh, they, because Parliament was convened late in 1640, so the first thing they do is let out the political prisoners and uh, uh, pass a law saying they can't be dissolved without their own consent. 1641, they get a little more radical. Remember that Laud had had the Star Chamber and the Court of High Commission, uh, the Archbishop's Court and the King's Court that he had used to imprison his political and his religious enemies and to, and to mete out all these vicious pun punishments. Parliament says, those are gone. Star Chamber, gone. Court of High Commission, gone. In fact, in fact, Archbishop Laud is gone. They arrest Archbishop Laud and they put him on trial. And what must have been like a bad dream... Parliament appoints as the chief prosecutor of Archbishop Laud one William Prynne. And that was not a good scene, I can tell you that. So they, they try Laud and they convict him and they ship him off to prison. Because he gets an appeal, uh, he has to go before the House of Lords before they can, they can, they can uh, do anything more with him. So William Prynne exacts his revenge on Archbishop Laud. Well, meanwhile, Ireland breaks loose in chaos. Ireland, I think we touched on this way back with James I. Ireland, of course, Catholic country. And James, as part of his policy of attempting to uh, uh, limit the influence of Roman Catholicism, had begun settling Northern Ireland. Now when I say settling Northern Ireland, it's not because there was no one else living there. There were lots of people living there. 
But James started a policy whereby he would give land grants to Protestants who would go to Northern Ireland and take the place over. And uh, generally that meant either uh, evicting the people who lived there or turning them into basically tenant farmers or, 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 or virtually slave labor. Mostly what it involved was evicting them, driving them, driving them into the moors and uh, into areas that were unsuitable for habitation or for growing anything and causing starvation. Well, after um, you know, 40 years of this kind of practice or more, they have the predictable uprising and the Irish rebellion, the Irish peasants rebel against the English landlords and in Ulster, which is a city you'll still hear about today with uh, the conflict in Northern Ireland, in Ulster, the peasants come in and wholesale massacre the Protestants who can't escape and proceed to uh, begin in essence, restoring their own self-government and trying to take back over the north of Ireland. So Charles goes to Parliament and he says, all right, you know, we're paying off the Scots, but we have a new problem. We have the Irish problem. And I need an army. Because he didn't have an army. Um, he's out of money. He didn't have money to raise an army. He said, goes to Parliament he says, I need an army to send to Ireland to suppress the rebellion. Well, Parliament has gotten word that Charles may have, in fact, fomented or caused the rebellion or encouraged the rebellion in Northern Ireland just so that he could get an army from Parliament, which he could then use against Parliament. And Parliament says, you know, you want us to give you an army? you're going to have to cough up some more reforms. And they sign a document, pass and sign a document called the Grand Remonstrance. And it is grand. It's, uh, when I, uh, it's about 23 pages of 8.5 by 11 with, with a 10-pitch font. And it is a litany of every evil that Charles has ever committed, going back all the way to the, the intrigues with Buckingham and uh, the, the, the uh, religious repression and Archbishop Laud, and basically the entire way that Charles ran the government is outlined point by point, and they say it comes to an end now if you want us to, to, to pass a militia bill to raise an army. You're not getting an army for Ireland unless all of this stops. And what this grand remonstrance, remonstrance amounts to is a call for a revolution in English government that would ex severely restrict the power of the monarch, a revolution in the English church government, which would virtually convert it to Presbyterianism and would oust all of the, the papist and crypto-papist bishops and priests it's extremely radical uh, for the time. And it, it just barely passes, though. There's just 300 or so people in Parliament, and they were very closely split on this, and it only passed by a few votes. So Charles takes a look at that, and he says, well, he says, because uh, a lot of the moderates start going over to the royalist side because they viewed it as a little bit extreme. 
Charles takes a look at that and he says, you know what? He says, I think if I play my cards right, I'll shut this number down. I'll get my army. I will get control of Parliament. And I'll get rid of these guys that are, that are making my life miserable. And I'll, I'll get this thing back. And then he does something that probably wasn't a very good idea. Which is, he says, I'm not doing anything involved with this grand remonstrance. And in fact, the guys who wrote it, which was four or five guys, you're under arrest. And he sends, he, he sends uh, an officer to Parliament in session to arrest them. Well, the, they had wind of this before it happened. And they had already secluded themselves. And the officers show up to arrest the leaders of Parliament. And the Speaker of Parliament says, in essence, um, if the people in this room don't tell me that I see them, I can't see them. If Parliament doesn't tell me where they are, I don't know where they are. Sorry, can't turn them over. And Parliament is outraged by this attempt to arrest these leaders who wrote the Grand Remonstrance because they see that it's just another transparent effort of Charles to seize power. And this is it. This attempt to arrest the leaders of Parliament now is going to cause civil war. Charles says, okay, fine, I'll find a way to raise an army. I'm going to get rid of you guys. Parliament says, you know what, we'll raise our own army and we'll settle this thing. And so we have a kind of high noon developing. Parliament sends him the Grand Remonstrance again. He says, no, I'm, I'm not going to do it. Uh, Charles goes to the House of Lords and he says, guys, I need, I need an army. And so a lot of the royalists, the House of Lords, in case, in case you don't know, uh, in the, the, part, the way Parliament works in England, you have that, the House of Commons, which was popularly elected. And then you have the House of Lords, which was uh, it was like our Senate. It was the upper house, and it was inherited. And it was all basically wealthy nobility types, and they would pass their position on to their sons. So they tended to be allied with the monarchy, because they tended to have the same interests. Charles goes to the House of Lords. He's, he raises an army in the north of England. Uh, Parliament passes a militia bill, raises an army, and they... Um, appoint a leader by the name of Robert Devereux, and they're getting ready to face off. But just before they face off, Parliament shuts down all the theaters in England uh, to appease and avert the wrath of God, because the Puritans were, of course, very much against theater, and they thought perhaps that by shutting down the theater, that would help get a little more of God on their side in the upcoming battle. So in October of, 1640, of 1642 now, the armies meet and they fight to a draw. No one can win. Uh, Charles gains a little ground in the north, and Charles wants to take London. That's his big thing. If I can take London with my army, I will have control of this deal. And in 1643, he's ready to begin an all-out assault, a march on London, when a typhus epidemic sweeps England and decimates both the parliamentary army and Charles's army. And he has to abandon his personal plan to take London. Uh, English Parliament can't win this one. Charles can't win it. 
So they do what everybody does when you can't win in England. You turn to Scotland and you see if you can get them to help. So Parliament gets there first. They go to Scotland and they say, we need some military help here because we can't take this guy's army. We want to take his army. We want to to shut this business down. We need some help. And Scotland says, we'll give you some help, but there are some conditions. The condition is that you agree to establish Presbyterian government in Scotland, England, and Ireland. As the only, that'll be the national church for the three kingdoms. Because what we have in Scotland are some hardcore Presbyterians. And they, it's the only legitimate church government. It's the one that needs to be. Because remember, one state, one church. And they very much believe that. We're going to have one church. It's going to be a Presbyterian church. And they look at this as a kind of opportunity. Because Charles uh, came up there and messed with them. They don't really like Charles very much. They would like to get him under control. They can use the they've been wanting to see Presbyterian government in England because if they could get that, then nobody will be coming up to Scotland to mess with them. So they say, swear to it, swear to it that this is what you'll do. And so in 1643, the English Parliament and the Scottish Parliament uh, write and and take a uh, an oath to uphold the Solemn League and covenant, which is essentially a document uh, that says they'll have Presbyterian government in the, three, in, the, in, in the kingdom, the three nations in the kingdom. In return for this, the Scots agree that they will attack Charles. Parliament, the English Parliament, will pay the Scots £30,000 a month, which was a substantial sum of money at that time. Popery and prelacy uh, will be extirpated from the entire realm, and there will be a reformation of religion in the kingdoms of England and Ireland and Scotland in doctrine, worship, and government. And it is pursuant to the passage of the Solemn League and Covenant by the English Parliament, we have to figure out how are we going to do that? What are we going to do? How are we going to uh, get this agreement on doctrine and worship and government in, in, in the three kingdoms. And so they decide to call an assembly of, edu- of, of divines, as they called them, educated, uh, theological, theologically educated men, the, the best and brightest of the day, if you will. And so they summon the Westminster Assembly. The Westminster Assembly consisted of over a hundred Puritan scholars, preachers, uh, uh, university men, and the assembly represented all of the major factions of English religious life. Uh, no, let me let me correct that. The assembly represented all the um, the Puritan. what they would have considered the legitimate uh, factions of English religious life, those who advocated prelacy uh, or the status quo of the the Anglican church, as we'd seen before, were not invited. No point in having them here because we're getting rid of that. Remember, we're establishing Presbyterianism. 
So they invited the English Presbyterians, they invited Scottish Presbyterians, and then there were two other groups that kind of crept in. One was a couple of guys who were what they called Erastians from England. This is a bizarre sort of a theory that you shouldn't have independent church government. In fact, you didn't have church government at all in a Christian state. Their theory was in a Christian state, uh, the government ran the church. Only when you didn't have a Christian state did you need a, a Christian independent church government. There's a couple of those guys crept in. And then there were five, six, seven English independents. And these guys would prove to be the giant thorn in the side for the Westminster Assembly. The independents were anti-Presbyterian. They, they, they did not believe in Presbyterian church government. They believed in the independence of each congregation from each other. Not, it wasn't a kind of extreme or absolute independence. It was really what we would consider to be very moderate, almost a... Um, Almost a, ver almost a version of, of um, what do we call it with the Southern Baptists? Um, um, associationalism, yeah. It was, very much, it was very much an associational principle where, uh, but the seat of government was in each church and the authority, uh, the absolute authority was in the government of each congregation. And uh, as opposed to Presbyterianism, in which their theory was that the seat of government was above the local congregation in the presbyteries or in the assemblies of elders from each congregation. And I do not I believe that Presbyterian teaching elders are not members of the local Well there was there was there that has been a historic debate. Okay. So that that's that's a denominational issue. Okay, all right. So they gather in Westminster and they begin to hash out these issues. How are we going to reform the doctrine of the church? Well, doctrine was pretty easy, actually. Uh, they, they were, because they were in so much agreement. These were all Calvinists, strong, hardcore Calvinists. So they had very little problem coming to agreement on what we would call the doctrinal portion of how they believed the church and the three kingdoms should be reformed. Uh, they very quickly came to agreement about how to conduct the worship of the church. Get rid of the prayer book, get rid of liturgy, and they, they wrote a form of worship, which basically matches more or less how we practice worship here. Reading of scripture, prayer, uh, sermons, administration of the Lord's Supper, uh, very much familiar to us, and they—they—that uh, was in the—they uh, wrote a directory for published for public worship. They also wrote a confession of faith and the larger and shorter catechism, which is a question and answer method of teaching doctrine. But they got bogged down in two issues. One was church government, <clears throat> and the other issue <laughs> was the concept of toleration. <laughs> The independents knew that there was no way they were going to win this fight in the Westminster Assembly. They only had like eight guys out of a hundred who were, or more who were voting. Knew there was no way they were going to win. So they wanted to make sure that they could argue for this. Toleration. Well, sure, we can have a state church with a Presbyterian government but we need to have an allowance made 
for people whose conscience, whose conscience won't allow them to participate. Now, this wasn't a universal toleration by any means. I mean, uh, these guys, when I say toleration, uh, we'll see how far that extends shortly. And it doesn't extend very far. It was a, a toleration of more or less the people who agreed with uh, the way of conducting worship and the doctrines that they had already laid forth, but who simply couldn't agree about how to govern the church, that, that you would allow them to have their own congregations. And this was a giant battle, and the Presbyterians said, no way. Our way or the highway, or worse. This is how it's going to be. Now this Westminster Assembly, I don't want to give you the idea that it's something that happened in six months. This thing lasted from 1643 to 1648 or 49. So you need, the reason I'm going over it now is just so we can kind of get it out of the way, but this is an ongoing thing. Over the course of the next six years, they're having uh, basically a, a, a giant convention, if you will. People would come and go now and then. People would retire from the assembly and be replaced. They're having this giant convention, and they have committees, and the committees are working on different portions, different documents, uh, different, different portions of different documents, different parts of the confession or the catechism or the uh, uh, directory for worship or, the, or government, and then they would come back together in large sessions, and they would vote on various statements, and there would be amendments, and it was this giant uh, convention that was going on for six years in the midst of a civil war, which is pretty astonishing as it goes. But it opened in 1643 directly as a result of the English needing the aid of the Scottish army to control or defeat the forces of the king. So we move to 1644. Archbishop Laud, predictably, is found not guilty of treason by the House of Lords. Not to be outdone, the House of Commons says, that's okay. We're going to take care of this guy. And they pass what is called um, a bill of attainder, which is essentially like if Congress decided that they didn't like the outcome of a trial and passed a bill like you, you were tried for something and you were found you know, not guilty. And Congress said, no, we know you're guilty. And they pass a bill saying that you're guilty and that's the end of you. And that's exactly what they did. Uh, Archbishop Laud was condemned to death and left this world in 1644. The Scottish army has formed under a fellow named Alexander Leslie and has come down from the north and is advancing on the forces of Charles. And we have in 1644... A very famous battle, one of the most famous battles of the first uh, English Civil War, called the Battle of Marston Moor, in which Oliver Cromwell, who's a name we're about to hear a lot of, who was at this point just a leader of a regiment in the English army. He, he was also a member of Parliament, uh, but he was away at this point, fighting, leading his regiment in battle against the king. Cromwell's leading a regiment called the Ironsides, and Alexander Leslie with the Scottish army take on uh, Charles's cavaliers and defeat them at the Battle of Marston Moor and take control of the northern portion of England, which had been Charles's stronghold. And that's bad for Charles. 
But things are never that simple, are they? Because, okay, hold on to your hat here, because we're about to get one of these scorecard situations going. If you will, we have Scotland and we have England. Scotland up here, England down here. Now, already in England, we have two forces, right? We have the parliamentary force, for parliamentary, and we have the royalist force. And now, England has hired the Scottish army. Well, there were some people in Scotland who were still loyal to the king, mostly Highlanders. And a guy by the name of Lord Montrose raises an army of Scottish Highlanders to, and, and, and some people from Ireland as well, to take on the parliamentary force and Leslie's force. So now we have uh, Leslie's group and we have Montrose's group. Roughly dividing up like this. And we're all going to have a battle royal. And so now things are incredibly complicated. Royalists and parliamentarians in England and... Leslie and Montrose in Scotland, and friction beginning to develop in the parliamentary force between the Presbyterians and the Independents as a, as a direct result of what was going on at the Westminster Assembly. Very complex uh, arrangement taking place. The independents in the Westminster Assembly see that they are going to lose the fight over church government and they're going to lose the fight over toleration. But they happen to know that the English army is predominantly drawn from ranks of society where independency is supported and Presbyterianism is not. So, in conjunction with Oliver Cromwell, the independents at the Westminster Assembly hatch a scheme. And here's the first part of the scheme. It's called the Self-Denying Ordinance, which was passed in 1644. At this point in time, you have guys in Parliament who command portions of the military. Cromwell says, we need to reorganize the military. We need to make it an independent military. And so everybody in Parliament who has a command, except me, needs to resign their command. And we'll reorganize the army, and we'll have army officers who are independent of Parliament, except me. And the reason he could get away with the except me was because he was a really good military commander, and he was vital to their success against Charles. So the self-denying ordinance passes and they reorganize the army into something called the New Model Army. <coughs> so now, the army is its own independent force. So if you will, you have parliaments, you have uh, the royalists, you have the army, and then you have Leslie and Montrose up in Scotland. 
We move to 1645 in the Battle of Naseby. Cromwell again takes on Charles's cavaliers, as they were called, and defeats them. The Battle of Naseby. The New Model Army, after defeating Charles at Nesby, invades Scotland, and they defeat Montrose. And then they come back down and have a battle at Stowe-on-the-Wold and defeat a fellow by the name of Lord Ashley. And essentially, what happens is a series of um, flanking maneuvers in which various people are knocked out. The Royalist army is shut down. Montrose's army is shut down. They get control. And Charles is in trouble. Cromwell is closing in on him. And some people have become concerned at this point by the fact that the army is independent of Parliament, and Charles doesn't want to get caught by the army because he's not sure what they'll do with him. So Charles, being a steward from Scotland, says, I'll surrender, but I'll surrender to Leslie. And he surrenders himself in... Uh, on May 5th of 1646 to the Scottish army. So Parliament says, okay, all right, we're still willing to cut a deal here because no one at this point is suggesting that you not have a monarch. No one, well, some people are, but we'll get to them in a second. No one is really, no one, none of the important players, not loudly anyway. Parliament still wants to see basically a reformation of government and a reformation of the church. They're, they're not against having a monarch. Uh, they're, they're, uh, in fact, they believe in that form of government. So Parliament says, all right, here's the deal. Take the Solemn League and Covenant, Charles. Take the Solemn League and Covenant. Accept the establishment of Protestant Presbyterian religion as the state religion of England and let us control the militia for the next 20 years by which time they figure they'll be rid of Charles let us have control of the military such as it is uh, let us have the kind of church we want and reduce your powers substantially Charles who was kind of an old fox Charles is held captive by the Scots, so he's here in Scotland, if you will. He gets wind of what's happening here between the army and the independents in the Westminster Assembly and the Presbyterians in Parliament and the independents in Parliament and says, I think I see an opportunity here. So he says, he thinks this is all about to collapse. That they're going to they're going to start fighting one another, and he'll be able to move back in on the whole thing and get control. So he says, "No, I I, I refuse to uh, I refuse to accept this. This is not going to happen." Well, that probably wasn't the smartest move he could make, because right now, if you recall, the Parliament is paying the Scottish army to fight. Charles is in the possession of the Scottish army. So Parliament says, tell you what, we'll take this guy off your hands. Uh, you guys haven't been paid for a while. We'll give you 400,000 English pounds of back pay if you'll hand over Charles. And the Scots say, okay. 
<laughs> so, Charles now is handed over to Parliament. And Parliament says, war's over. Don't need to fight anymore. War's finished now. So, uh, you guys can go home. Army, see ya. It was nice and uh, great. Fighting's over. We've got it under control. We've got Charles. And they pass a law disbanding the army. Well, it didn't work. The army, now led by a guy named Thomas Fairfax with Cromwell as second in command, says, we're not going anywhere. In fact, we're going to run this show. And they capture Charles, who was being held sort of off-site in a quote-unquote secret location. Well, the army seizes him and enters London and is attempting to force uh, Parliament to accept their, their will. Now, there's something else going on, though. We have to introduce another set of players. In 16, we're now into uh, 1647. In 1646, there was a group that came to Providence called the Levelers. The Levelers, this is what the Levelers advocated. They said, look, this whole system is goofy. Get rid of the monarchy. Get rid of the House of Lords. Let's have a separation of church and state. Let's have universal suffrage or right to vote for most Englishmen. Let's have public elections for all offices instead of having uh, these appointed offices that the king and parliament are always setting up. Let's have the House of Commons as the only uh, constitutional elected law of the land. Let's have tax reform. Let's have legal reform. Let's have land reform. And while we're at it, we're getting really tired of being conscripted into armies, forced to go fight people, and then not getting paid. So you know what? Let's get rid of the draft, too. And of course, that sounds astonishingly like, of course that's what we should do to us. Well, the levelers were considered incredibly radical at that time. But they had developed a stronghold within the army. And there were a substantial number of Cromwell's army who were members of the levelers and supporters of the levelers. And in the midst of all of this business of Charles going to Parliament and then the army capturing Charles and trying to force Parliament to accept their settlement, the army has a little mutiny. A little leveler mutiny. <coughs> they show up and they say they want to have a debate about their proposals. And so Cromwell and Fairfax let them have a debate. It's called the Putney Debates. And they have a debate and Cromwell and Fairfax and the Army Council loosely agree to some of their more moderate demands. Things relating to back pay for the army and some other, some other sorts of things. And so they have the Putney debates, and 
they have this agreement and they're going to go to a place called Corkbush Field and they're going to tell the army about this great deal that they've gotten out of the army high command. And they show up there and Cromwell has sent forces who basically arrest most of the levelers and they take one of them and they put him out in the middle of a field right in front of all the people that are gathered there and they shoot him dead. And they say, now, pull this again and that's what's going to happen to you. Well, then the army has a, a bit of bad luck. Charles escapes the custody of the army. It's Charles. He is, a, he is a fox. He's just a wily old fox. He escapes, and he's trying actually to get out of the country. But it requires the help of lots of people to do that. He makes it as far as the Isle of Wight. And on the Isle of Wight, the governor detains him. And so... He's there on the Isle of Wight, and he says, "Okay, I'm, I'm not, I'm not out of here just yet. I'm gonna, I'm gonna figure out how I can, how I can work this thing." Still, Parliament is controlled basically by the Presbyterian faction. Now there's an open rift between the army and Parliament. Cromwell's threatening them. Parliament sends some bills to Charles that say, "Look, one last time, accept the Grand Remonstrance. We'll let you be king." And, and we'll get rid of this problem with Cromwell that we're having. Well, Charles thinks he can work this another way. So, remember the Scots up here? Not Montrose, he's gone. He had to leave the country. But the Scots who had been paid to fight Charles, led by Leslie, and who had sold Charles to the English... Charles contacts them because they are now concerned. They can see what's happening between the army and parliament. If parliament goes down, then the Solid League and Covenant is over, and the work of the Westminster Assembly is over, and there will be no Presbyterian government in England, right? And that's really important to the Scots, that there be a national Presbyterian church. So Charles goes to the Scots, and he says, I'll make you a deal. I will make you a deal you cannot resist. I'll swear the Solemn League and Covenant, and we'll have a three-year trial period of Presbyterianism in England if you militarily back me and shut down Parliament and the army in England. And the Scots buy it. They buy it. They say, okay, you got a deal, because they're extremely concerned about Cromwell. They say, fine. And they attack England. Well, Cromwell by this time has a very well-organized army. And the Scottish army invades England, and Cromwell in a series of military battles defeats the Scottish army. The first one is the Battle of Preston, in which he defeats the Duke of Hamilton. And this is, uh, we're now into 1648. 
So we're, we're coming very close to the end of the Westminster Assembly, which is still going on all this time. These guys are meeting, you know, writing confessions of faith and, you know, having committees and coming out with catechisms. And, and meanwhile, the Scots are invading and the king is running all over the country and Parliament's splitting in half and Cromwell's taking over the army and he's shooting people that, that you know, try to uh, say that the army should get some back pay. So they're having a... Uh, they're having a tough time. Westminster Assembly is still going on. Parliament, of course, you know, finds out what's going on here, that the Scots are going to attack. They say, forget it. Okay, we renounce allegiance to Charles I. And the army captures Charles in December of 1648. They get him a second time. This time, he's not getting away. The army captures him. And Cromwell decides that it's about time that we have done with these Presbyterians. Because look at what these Presbyterians have gotten us so far. They, 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 they uh, resist my efforts in Parliament, and now, uh, well, gee, the Scots are Presbyterians, and these parliamentary leaders over here that I don't like are Presbyterians, and the Scots attacked England. So that means Presbyterianism is a form of treason against England? So that means I can argue that all the Presbyterians in Parliament should be put out. And that is exactly what he does, and that is exactly what happens. He has a little event called Pride's Purge. The Army Council orders a fellow named Thomas Pride to go to the assembled Long Parliament, and he has another fellow with him who points out all the Presbyterian members of the English Parliament. These guys are all elected representatives. The army points out all the Presbyterian members, you, you're out, you, you're out, you, you're out, because you're all, you're all, we know that you must be sympathizing with the king, because after all, the Scots have invaded, and you're like them, so you're out of here. So out of approximately 200 people, 150 of them are put out of Parliament. Not the majority, the supermajority, are put out of Parliament. And that leaves about 50, 60 guys. And this one is called the Rump Parliament. And it is completely controlled, or at least right at first, is completely controlled by the army. They indict, the Rump Parliament indicts Charles, and they have a trial, and they appoint a special High Court of Justice, and they find Charles guilty of treason for levying war against Parliament, and they behead him in public. Public execution of the king. This is a shocker. No matter how bad the king of England is, the English can't really get with that idea that you would kill them. In fact, they have this public execution, and it is reported that the response of the crowd was not to cheer. There was a giant, uh, loud and mournful groan. This one action of executing the king may have sealed the ultimate doom for Cromwell's takeover of England. They execute the king. The Rump Parliament 
abolishes the monarchy. The king is gone. The rump parliament abolishes the House of Lords. Getting rid of them too. This is starting to sound like the levelers, isn't it? And then they proclaim a republican form of government that they call the Commonwealth and Free State. And it's going to be governed by the parliament, the rump parliament, and what they call an executive council of state with Cromwell as the chairman. It's kind of like being the president at this point. He's going to be the president and the parliament's going to, going to kind of run things. Well, the levelers are still hanging around in the army. And... Uh, what happens is, as soon as they settle the government, they decide, we've got to take care of the Irish problem. We want to send the army to Ireland to shut these guys down. Because remember, this was the whole thing that provoked a lot of what was going on here. Um, it was right after the long parliament started, the Irish rebellion and the massacre of the Protestants. That's all, it's been you know, going on all this time. But th- nobody could go over there and do anything about it because there's a civil war going on. So now that that's cleared up, we're going to go take care of the Irish. Well, the army says, we're not going. We're not going unless you enact the reforms that the levelers want to have enacted. And Cromwell says, okay, fine. And in two successive events, he first uh, shuts down one mutiny and has a guy uh, shot by firing squad in the middle of town. And that causes a, uh, there's a, for his funeral, thousands of people show up and march through the streets for this guy's funeral. And that worries them even more. Now you have thousands of people showing up for a guy's funeral that you just shot. So you've got to shut it down. So they have another mutiny and uh, they defeat two of these regiments and then finally... At the end of the Levellers' uh, uh, mutiny, uh, they have a, a little deal where Cromwell says, okay, I'll tell you what, we'll, we'll meet and we'll discuss these things, but we'll do it tomorrow. And in the middle of the night, Cromwell and his soldiers attack the last sleeping Leveller regiment and kill them. And he solidifies his power on the army. Now, no more, no more mutinies. The levelers are gone. We took care of that group. They invade Ireland. He spends about a year in Ireland and they brutally put down the Irish rebellion. Uh, basically a take-no-prisoners situation. There were, there were <coughs> battles uh, in which they killed 99% of the opposing force. Uh, uh, that was the one called at Drogheda, and there was one at Wexford in which Cromwell's army, uh, led by Cromwell, decided that uh, they'd go ahead and kill all the townspeople too. Cavaliers, meanwhile, the royalist supporters in England know that the game is up for them. They start leaving the country. Charles II uh, has, has gone to the continent by this point. Um, Charles's son. And a lot of the royalist supporters, interestingly, go to Virginia. And that uh, really will change or affect the entire character of Virginia as a state uh, all through the development of the United States, which is a whole other story sometime. So Cromwell comes back from Ireland, 
still got the rump parliament going on, controlled by the uh, independents. He solidified his power over the army. Charles II, who's about 19 years old, has cut a deal with the Scots. He says, I tell you what, I'll take the Solemn League and Covenant and the National Covenant if you will invade England and restore me as king. Now, it didn't work the last time, but they're going to try it again. So they raise an army, and in 1650, they attack England. And Cromwell completely routes the Scottish forces, decimates them. And, they t- and these, are, these are covenanter forces. These are other Puritans. This is not a royal, it's, it's, it's not a, you know, Arminian and Papists and things like that. This is a covenanter army. Hardcore Puritans. Harder core than Cromwell, one could argue. Decimates their army, takes a number of the soldiers, the ones he captures, and essentially sells them into slavery in Ireland and America. He occupies Scotland, shuts down the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland, and puts military forces in all of their churches. Because he says, you know what you guys are, you Presbyterians? You're a bunch of seditious uh, uh, rabble-rousers who are trying to overthrow the government. Not as if he had recently been involved in something like that, but, you know, hey, it's different, you know. And I should mention in 1650, which is when this is all happening, the first English coffee house opens. So, uh, you know, something that would also change the course of history. Well, uh, Charles II is not captured by Cromwell's army. He has to flee the country, and, and this is another one of those amusing disguise things. Uh, Charles II disguises himself as the servant to the daughter of one of these uh, uh, royalist sympathizing lords uh, and uh, as if he's accompanying her on a trip. And so the next king of England and who has been proclaimed king of England as Scotland while in Scotland has to pretend that he is a, 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 a little girl's servant, uh, servant boy in order to escape the country. So he leaves. Well, it was almost a foregone conclusion that Cromwell would not be able to get along with Parliament. Just... The Parliament, uh, in spite of the fact of being made up by independents, decides that they need to do a little peacemaking in the country. And they pass an act called the Act of Indemnity and Oblivion. And what that does is it says... In this whole civil war, which was literally a mess like this, um, most of the royalists, uh, the, the various nobles who had supported the king, had had their land confiscated by the army through the course of this battle. And the army was essentially giving it to soldiers in lieu of pay. And Parliament says, we... We're not sure how comfortable we are with this whole situation, so we're going we're gonna to restore these lands to these lords. And uh, the army gets very uh, outraged by this and says that the parliament was taking bribes, which may very well have been true. It certainly wouldn't be the first time, would it? And so Cromwell and the army become very angry by the actions of the rump parliament, 
and he marches the army to Westminster and he dissolves Parliament. <laughs> he dissolves Parliament and he says, he says, it did not rouse so much as the barking of a dog. His contempt for the, for the rump Parliament is so great. And now we have one of the truly bizarre events in the history of England. This one is just flat out weird. There was a movement amongst the Puritans, especially amongst Baptists and some of the other more radical separatists at this time called the Fifth Monarchy. The Fifth Monarchy was a, uh, for lack of a better word, it was an apocalyptic prophecy kind of movement. Uh, they were obsessed with, in fact, the Book of Daniel. And the king, the dream of King Nebuchadnezzar of the five kingdoms. And the view was that they were in the, they were, they were in the end times. <laughs> and that all of these events were part of the prophecies of the Old Testament, but particularly the English Civil War and the execution of Charles I. And with the execution of Charles I would come the fifth kingdom of Daniel. The fifth monarchy. And the fifth monarchy would prepare the world for the second coming of Christ. It would reform the government for Christ's rule. Greed and power would be replaced with brotherly love. Tithes and taxes would cease. Uh, there would be care for the poor and release of debtors from prison, the great jubilee, and there would be back pay for the new model army. I am not kidding. Back pay for the new model army. Very popular movement in certain quarters. And the, there was a guy who was involved with this movement who was in the army, one of the, one of the leaders of the Fifth Monarchy movement. His name was Major General Thomas Harrison. And Thomas Harrison had the ear of Cromwell, and he had the ear of the nation. He was a war hero. He had been prominent in some of the greatest battles. Uh, he, was, he was really kind of a second or third in command to, to, to Cromwell at this point. And he says, you know what? He says, we need back... He, he was the one who encouraged the dissolution of the rump parliament. He says, we need to get rid of these guys, because they're, they they're traitors. They, they want to give land back to these lords, and they're not going with the program. We need to go with God's program of government, because we're getting ready for the return of Christ. And so Thomas Harrison personally uh, uh, goes to Parliament and pulled the speaker out of his chair at the dissolution of the rump Parliament. And he says, here's what we need to do. We need to have a government based on the Bible. And we can find that government from the Old Testament scriptures and the Sanhedrin. So what we're going to have in England, we're going to have, we will have a parliament, but it's really going to be an assembly of godly men who will run this country. 140 godly men, just like the Jewish Sanhedrin. So they, he convinces Cromwell and the, uh, the, the, the army council to form a government, a parliament, which for a reason I'm about to tell you, is going to be called the Bare Bones Parliament. And what they do is this. They take nominations. But the only people who can nominate members of the Bare Bones Parliament are people from uh, independent churches, Baptist churches, and other sects. None of those Presbyterians or any of those other guys, they're excluded. They're not going to have a say, because they obviously are not with God. We're with God. They're not with God. 
So we'll run things. So they, they take nominees from these churches, and then Cromwell and his council choose from the, the army, right? The army and his council choose 140 people to serve in the Barebones Parliament. The reason it's called the Barebones Parliament is not because it was small, but because there was a guy in it, I kid you not, whose name was Praise God Barebones. <laughs> he was a Baptist preacher. And his, his parents named him Praise God. So his name was Praise God Barebones. And, the, and the, the enemies of this parliament fastened on his name and called it the Barebones Parliament. Now they did pass a number of ordinances that were, were fairly reasonable. Um, they, had, uh, they set up a civil registration of births, marriages, and deaths. They had a, a requirement that marriages be performed by, not by, merely by the clergy, but by a justice of the peace. In fact, I think they got rid of clergy marriage altogether. They would only be performed by justices of the peace. Uh, they had some protections put into place for insane people so that their estates couldn't be taken away from them. They had some provision for relieving debtors. And, uh, and, and this wasn't... Uh, I, I must say that this parliament was not made up of people who were quite as weird... As, uh, as Thomas uh, Harrison. Because these were people who came from the churches. Some of them were pretty wild guys. And some of them were sort of moderate Puritans. And that actually created a conflict within this parliament. You had, you had some radicals who were part of this fifth monarchy movement. And then you had some sort of normal Puritans. Baptist Puritans and, and Separatist Puritans who were not. And, and these, the, the radicals started to get kind of weird on what they wanted to do, because after all, we're getting ready for the return of Christ. And even Cromwell, even Cromwell becomes concerned by the activities of the radicals. And so the moderates who had the majority <coughs> vote to dissolve Parliament. <laughs> and turn the government back over to Cromwell because they figure it's better than letting these guys have control. Well, the radicals refuse to accept it, and Cromwell has to send the army to Parliament to remove Thomas Harrison and his supporters from Parliament. Thomas Harrison's thrown out of the army, and he's eventually imprisoned a couple of times. And then Cromwell and a group of army officers draw up a thing called the Instrument of Government in 1653, when all this happens. The Instrument of Government proclaims Cromwell Lord Protector of England, Scotland, and Ireland. It says that there will be a standing army in England of 30,000 people. Now that's a pretty serious deal because there was no standing army. There were only regional militias that would be raised from time to time. And that would even be an issue in our country with the Revolutionary War, uh, because at this point England had a standing army and were quartering them in the, in the colonies. And in fact, uh, part of the Constitutional Revolution was an attempt to eliminate or forbid even America or the, the new nation from having a standing army. So Cromwell is going to have a standing army. He'll have a council of 21 and he'll have a parliament of 460 people, and they, they have the, the parliament will have the power to levy taxes and, and have a five-month guarantee against dissolution. So this is looking pretty good. I mean, Cromwell's obviously an army guy, but he's setting up what seems like a, it's going to be an elected government. But it never, ever works that way when the army sets up the government. I don't think there has been any time in the history of the world when an army coup 
to overthrow the government, no matter what they say or argue or try or intend, has ever set up a representative government. And it won't work this time either. And it won't work primarily because of Oliver Cromwell. They're going to set up parliament, they're going to have a council, they're going to have this army. And they do do some good things uh, as part of this instrument of government. They proclaim a kind of religious tolerance. Jews can live in England again for the first time since Edward I. Uh, on the other hand, Catholic priests have to leave the country. Anglican clergymen are forbidden to teach or preach. Can't, can't preach a sermon. Uh, the Quakers, however, are allowed to flourish, and congregations are permitted to have their own uh, form of worship. There's still licensing of preachers, and it's still done by the government, but it's kind of a... Uh, crew of Baptists and uh, independents and you would go before them and pretty much if you were, if, as long as you weren't a Presbyterian you could get a license. If you're a Presbyterian you'd give it up. Well, the very first thing the new parliament does after being put into existence by the instrument of government in 1653, in 1654 this new parliament assembles. And they say, you know, we like this uh, instrument of government, but actually we think we'd like to write a new constitution. So Cromwell, after setting up this supposedly representative government, says, we're not going to do that. And in fact, he issues an order excluding all of the, quote, hostile members of Parliament, i.e. the ones who didn't support Oliver Cromwell, are thrown out of Parliament. Even that doesn't settle Parliament down. So you know what Cromwell does? One guess. <laughs> Dissolve Parliament. Declares martial law in response to a... There's a small royalist uprising the next year, 1655. Cromwell essentially declares martial law. He takes England and he divides it into military districts. And he puts a standing army in each of these 12 districts and he levies a tax on the royalist estates to support this uh, militia, he called it, but it was really a, a, an army. And he puts an army colonel in charge of each of the 12 districts that he's divided England up into. They shut down the press. The press is forbidden to write anything critical of Cromwell's government. Um, they install uh, laws against drinking and swearing and gambling and going for a walk on Sundays in some districts was a punishable offense due to their uh, rather extreme Sabbatarianism. Well, this was, as you can imagine, wildly unpopular. In 1656, the next year, Spain declares war on England. And Cromwell is forced to call Parliament in order to try to raise funds for an army. Uh, he's required to dismiss the military government in 1657. Uh, and in 1658, he dies. And then uh, after that, England descends into another brief uh, sort of semi-civil war. His son, who, who uh, had a right of succession... <coughs> Okay, um, becomes Lord Protector uh, for a while, and uh, he, he's a dismal failure and retires to the country. 
doesn't want to be bothered. And uh, then there's a, a former, the Scots army gets involved and Charles II comes back over and eventually uh, they settle the matter and Charles II is installed as king and uh, parliament is, is uh, reconvened and Charles II almost immediately begins to brutally slaughter all of the Puritans and all of the Scottish Covenanters. And uh, England goes into dark days uh, all the way up to 1689, uh, when finally, after Charles II and James II, uh, there is a negotiated settlement, and uh, William of Orange uh, becomes the uh, king of England and ends the Stuart dynasty, and toleration is once and for all finally proclaimed in England, and everybody can have their own church, and the Anglican church gets stuck with their own rotten system and ends up where it is today, and we end up where we are today. So that's the brief version of the whole rest of history. <laughs> and uh, if, if, it, if it wasn't obvious, I should mention that once 1650 rolled around, uh, of course the work of the Westminster Assembly as far as having any impact in English church life was, was done. Uh, the West, all of the documents of the Westminster Assembly eventually became the controlling documents of the Scottish Presbyterian Church, and all Scottish Presbyterian churches to this day generally have the Westminster Confession and the Directory for Public Worship and the Large and Shorter Catechism. They were adopted by the Scottish Church, but of course there never was a national English Presbyterian Church because uh, the Second Civil War between Cromwell and Parliament uh, put an end to it, and then the restoration of Charles II brought back Anglicanism. So, as far as England is concerned, the Westminster Assembly pretty much did nothing. Uh, it is important for us, of course, because after the uh, end of the Stuart monarchs and William of Orange coming from England, there was an effort made by the Baptists, the particular Baptists, the Calvinistic Baptists, to communicate to the public that they were not a weird radical sect. And the way that they communicated to the public that they were not a weird radical sect and that they were really quite mainstream was by taking the Westminster Confession of Faith, revising uh, the chapters on church government and baptism in the Lord's Supper, and issuing it in 1689 as the London uh, Baptist Confession of Faith. And so for that's where the Westminster Confession then becomes the foundational document for Calvinistic Baptists from 16... Actually, 1677 was the first time they did it, and then it was reissued when the, when the uh, uh, toleration was proclaimed all the way from then uh, to today. And that's the end of your lengthy, many long hours of history lessons. Very good. <laughs>